Dr. Naresh Prakash Kuntur. He is a senior research scientist, Intelligent Automation Inc., Rockville, MD, US. He has an MS and PhD from the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering, University of Maryland. His research interests include human activity recognition, scene understanding, perceptual organization, and computer vision for robotics applications. He pursues Sanskrit with keen interest and is a volunteer for Samskrita Bharati USA. these two aspects of Pollock's uh, uh, view on the fact theory. Uh, the first being the change-based perspective and the second being his take on the science and, and history of Rafa development and how it has a potential connection to uh, modern uh, thought and perceptual aesthetics and cognitive uh, theories, uh, even though Pollock doesn't think that that link can be made. One of the first uh, things that he talks about in his work on the theory is that Pollock believes that these two forms of literature, uh, the Drishya Kavya and Shravya Kavya, are fundamentally distinct entities. And he makes this argument in uh, a set of five steps. So the first thing that he says is that Sanskrit texts themselves recognize the difference between these two literary forms, the literature heard and the literature seen forms. There isn't too much to say about that, except to say that, uh, yes, Trishya Kavyas and Shravya Kavyas are treated as different forms uh, of literary expression. But the more interesting claim that Pollock makes is that these two forms of literature are fundamentally different. So naturally the question becomes, what is this nature of difference, and what does that imply? Uh, we'll come back to what does it imply in the next slide. But how does he, how does he support this uh, claim uh, is essentially through three arguments. So he offers Goja's uh, characterization of poets and poetry as opposed to actors and acting, uh, using uh, a couple of introductory uh, comments that Bhoja makes in his Shringara Prakasha. So there, Bhoja, he does say that uh, he considers poets and uh, uh, poems, uh, or kavya, to be more uh, praiseworthy than actors and acting. But I think it's crucial to see the context within which Bhoja makes this point. So he, he is stating this as a, a claim to prove that he considers things that are visible uh, as being slightly less uh, value-laden than things that go beyond just what the visible form presents. Uh, and and Borja then sort of goes on to make the point of uh, how Shabdarka, meaning the word and meaning, uh, by, by itself, does not convey what a Sahitya conveys. So Sahitya, in that sense, has a much broader scope in its ability to reflect subtle and complex thoughts than simple words and their meanings. So Sahitya brings about the relationship between word and meaning and goes beyond. So Bhoja makes a similar point about poets and poetry, uh, comparing them to actors and acting. Uh, so the poets and poetry 
has a lot more subtle and rich interpretation uh, that a reader can perceive. So in that context, Boja makes this point. Okay. The second argument that uh, Pollock raises here is a, a, a verse that is not attributed to anybody in particular. It's an anonymous verse, which clearly states that literature in the word form or, or the, the, the Shravya Kadya is more praiseworthy because it has a higher narrative power. And the word that the, 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 the uh, verse uses is Vastu Shakti Mahima, which is true. Uh, one can express much more complex and subtle thoughts in words, which uh, on stage might not be uh, easily depicted. Uh, and finally, Pollock uh, raises the uh, uh, thing about Abhinav Gupta, where he says, Abhinav Gupta in his commentary on Nadi Shastra uh, praises actors over poets. So he takes sort of an opposite uh, viewpoint to Poja, essentially. Um, but the crucial point there is that Abhinava Gupta is writing a commentary on Natya Shastra, and naturally he would be inclined to praise actors because the whole point of his commentary is, is to uh, talk about uh, drama. And so one doesn't really understand why that would be uh, so shocking of Abhinava Gupta uh, in Natya Shastra's commentary. Be uh, that as it may, so these three uh, Aspects are really the evidence that uh, Pollock provides to say that these two forms of literature are fundamentally different. So the question for somebody uh, who would then, uh, you know, a traditional scholar who would then be able to refute this is to say uh, to what extent uh, are these uh, claims valid and what are the counter views that one can put forward. I'm not going to attempt uh, 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 that exercise here, but uh, just to make the point that I think these three claims are the core uh, claims of his, uh, uh, the, the first point, a fundamental difference in uh, the two forms of literature. If we accept this claim to begin with, that is to say that if we accept that literature heard and literature seen are fundamentally different, the implication that uh, Paula gives us is that the way rasa is treated, the Natya rasa and Kavya rasa should also be very different. Uh, and in particular, there should have been a significant evolution of rasa from Natya to Kavya. And that is what Pollock wants to look for. So that is the narrative he wants to build up. One, to say that there is a fundamental difference between these two forms. Then to posit that there must be a, a, an accompanying development of rasa theory, uh, and then to sort of establish uh, a development that fits this narrative. So that is the framework in within which uh, this change-based perspective is being developed. And then he makes the point that rasa must have expanded in scope in many ways. So these are the kinds of examples that he provides to say how Rasa would have expanded in scope, or Rasa theory would have expanded in scope to accommodate more subtle forms of uh, literary expression in the written form of literature. Uh, I, I say a written form of literature, but it is really the Shravya Kavya, which is uh, not the, the non-drama, let us say.
I won't get into the details of these points for want of time, but simply to mention that uh, Paula calls out the, the differences in the number of rasas and the different frameworks within which rasa theory has been uh, developed in traditional thought, including Mimamsa, Vedanta, and Bhakti, and so on. Uh, and interestingly enough, he calls out a special role for Buddhism in the development of Rasa theory. Specifically, he claims that the notion of Karuna Rasa would have been alien to these uh, pre-Buddhist uh, Hindu poets because the notion of Ahimsa and Karuna and, and all, all of that was really a contribution uh, that is uniquely tied to Buddhists and not to the, the Dramanical poets. Uh, and here he takes the uh, view of Samuel Johnson, he quotes this uh, pity is not natural to man, uh, which, which is a Samuel Johnson's uh, quote, to say that compassion or pity or com uh, 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 corona is not something that is naturally uh, developed in man. It's something that one civilizationally uh, develops, as the Buddhists did, uh, and by implication Hindus did not. So Hindus imported this notion from the Buddhists. Uh, in developing the notion of Karuna Rasa. But of course, uh, Paula leaves out the subsequent part of uh, Samuel Johnson's quote that I mentioned here. The pity is not natural to man. Children are always cruel. Savages are always cruel. So Samuel Johnson is making this point in a uh, civilization versus colonialism, that kind of a context. But we'll leave that apart for now. Uh, and I'll come back to this uh, Pity is not natural to man in a couple of slides. Um, but now to another form of change that uh, Pollock mentions here, he uh, really hails the contribution of Udbhata. Uh, Pollock says that before the advent of Udbhata, Rasa theory was riddled with uh, a whole lot of uh, confusion and contradictions. Uh, and then says that Uttata really changed the picture and uh, clarified uh, uh, the picture. And what is the evidence that he provides, Pollock provides? So he points to how Rasa was treated by the three Uttata theorists, in particular Bharata, Dhamaha, and Dandi. So Bharata's position on Rasa is that Rasa arises from the conjunction of factors, reactions, and so on. This is a very familiar position that we uh, heard in the previous talk as well, so I won't delve into that. Um, and Bhavaha does not really treat uh, Rasa as a separate topic, and this is, uh, Paula covers this as well. And Dandi, he notes, uh, uh, does not provide a special treatment of Rasa, but then he really uh, uses the same formula that Tarata used for Rasa's. So it's hard to make out, from my perspective, what the contradiction between these three theorists are. So Bharata laid out the foundational principle, Dhamaha did not have anything new to say about it, and Dandi uh, essentially refers back to Bharata. So w what is contradictory in this position is not clear. Uh, but uh, Paula claims that there were these contradictions which Uttata uh, resolved. So I think it would be interesting uh, for us to see uh, whether Uttara's contribution is indeed path-breaking, 
Uh, so what kind of contradictions were existing, if they were existing, and what did Buddha do? I, I don't have an answer to this question. I leave this as a question to more knowledgeable people. But I think this is a form of change that uh, uh, Paula specifically calls out, and it would be interesting to see what the uh, traditional position on this question would be. Uh, in the previous talk, uh, uh, as uh, we heard, uh, Pollock uh, is supposed to have mentioned that uh, Rasa belongs to the actor. Uh, I actually don't think that Pollock says that. So Pollock uh, describes the position of Rasa localization uh, as described by various theorists over time. And Pollock calls out the contribution of uh, Sri Shankuka and Bhattanayaka uh, for having made this unique observation that Rasa really belongs to the spectator and not to the actor. In fact, uh, Pollock goes into some length to describe Bhattanayaka's view uh, of how the spectator would then perceive uh, the, the, the Rasa that is depicted. And, and the depiction does not have to be just in a dramatic sense, where actors are acting out a play or something of that sort. It could just as, just as uh, uh, well apply to the case where a reader is savoring a, a work of poetry by himself to uh, Rajivji's question about uh, whether somebody can, uh, uh, by themselves, experience the rasa without a third party acting out that for them. Uh, indeed, yes, uh, one can do that. Uh, and uh, Bhattanayaka and Shankuka uh, really make the case for how that process would occur. So how would a spectator or a reader perceive the rasa in the work of art by experiencing it? And here Bhattanayaka's formulation of Sadharani uh, Karana is something that uh, uh, Pollock actually praises. I won't go into the details of it for want of time, but uh, what Pollock is doing is actually tracing the evolution of Rasa localization from being in the actor to being in, uh, to being in the work, to the actor, to the spectator. And then at each point, addressing the questions that need to be addressed. Uh, so if it is in the spectators, how does uh, every spectator understand it and so on? I'll, I'll only say here that um, this is a point that even traditional discussions have a lot uh, to say about, meaning people could keep coming back to this question of where the Rasa is located. Uh, but to some extent, it seems a little overblown in my opinion because even going back to Natya Shastra, the importance of audience is clearly recognized. Uh, Bharata discusses different types of uh, spectators and different types of audience. And he says that for this type of audience, these types of plays won't really be suitable uh, because it will simply go over their heads. I mean, they won't be able to appreciate the nuances. So clearly, Bharata takes the view that spectators is quite central to what is being enacted. And similarly, Shankuka gives the example of uh, Rasa in a painting, essentially. Uh, so he describes the painted horse, 
and says what, what all kinds of emotions can be evoked in somebody uh, looking at the painted horse. So I think this has a long history, um, even if it is not explicitly called out as social localization. Uh, so here, Pollock has several criticisms of why certain stable emotions tend to be called as stable emotions, as thai bhavas. For example, he says, why should anger be considered as thai bhava and hatred is not? Why should rati become a stable emotion but not sneha? Uh, and, and, and these are, I think, valid questions to ask. Uh, and Pollock does uh, call out the argument of uh, two, uh, 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 Sananjaya and Akhinava Gupta, but he doesn't really accept their arguments. And I think uh, uh, this is a discussion that's uh, worth having and uh, to, say, to see whether uh, Pollock has a point here or whether there is a counter view that really should prevail. Um, and I, I don't know the answer to this question, but I will leave that to more knowledgeable people again. Uh, and another criticism that he makes is that the list of emotions uh, seems to be quite stable in Indian literature, unlike Western uh, aesthetic uh, thought where uh, emotions sort of come up. Uh, melancholy was a newer uh, emotion that was introduced and so on. So Pollock finds this hard to digest. Why should some emotions not evolve with time? And that's actually a fair question to ask. I think there are a lot of ideas in today's uh, understanding of psychophysics and cognitive sciences which would apply to Rasa theory. Uh, in particular, these kinds of ideas that I call out here would, I think, merit some serious investigation into seeing how uh, we can understand Rasa. The idea here is not to look for modern scientific notions in ancient uh, texts. Rather, uh, I think well, the question is whether we can interpret Rasa theory as it is in newer frameworks. This is an exercise that is not alien to the Rasa tradition. As we have seen, uh, Rasa tradition has used Mimamsa framework at some point, then it used Vedanta framework, then it used Bhakti framework, and so on. So can we similarly use a modern scientific uh, framework to understand uh, what Rasa is and where is, where is it localized and, and so on? How do emotions arise and what kinds of emotions persist, what kinds of emotions uh, are temporary, and how all those questions can be addressed. Uh, so multiple memory systems are a fairly well-established notion both in cognitive science and computational uh, science where uh, we recognize the difference between long-term memory and short-term memory. So the question then becomes, how does a poet employ various devices to invoke uh, different aspects of long-term memory and short-term memory to uh, give the reader a feel of, of the uh, emotion that he intends to convey? Another theory, uh, I'm, I'm rapidly going over this for want of time. Another theory is Gestalt's loss of perception. This is a visual theory where, uh, which ex tries to explain how we as humans are able to perceive uh, objects just by a set of few points or lines. 
So our visual system can complete objects, complete lines, uh, and uh, form uh, beautiful pictures, uh, even if what we have actually observed are very few points. Uh, and there are several principles that come into play. So what are the analogs from Rasa theory that we can uh, bring out to see how uh, giving a few indicators in word, the poet is able to convey uh, a sense of a whole, uh, which is much more than a sum of uh, just individual parts. Another theory is reductionism, uh, which is uh, prevalent both in art and in math. Reductionism is, is where you take a complex idea, break it down into a set of simple problems, and then you look at the simple problems. In art, uh, reductionism evolved, uh, in, in the, for, for example, in, in the case of modern art. The people uh, first asked the question, okay, we want to paint landscapes. Then came the era of uh, impressionism, right? So where you don't paint the entire details of the landscape, but sketch out the uh, essential elements and leave the rest to the viewer's imagination. Then it came up to, uh, well, why should you give a picture like that? What are the elements uh, of uh, drawing? Uh, lines, shapes. So can, can we let the viewers make up whatever he wants to uh, infer by just those primitive shapes and lines? That's modern art. So these kinds of reductionist techniques have been used both for analysis and for application. So, Rasa theory, what does it have to say about this? And finally, the case of mirror neurons has really uh, revolutionized our understanding of uh, empathy and compassion and pity. So, this old adage of pity is not natural to man is not a contemporary notion at all. So, we understand this much more differently now. So. What does that impact uh, our understanding of Prasad theory? So these are the kinds of questions I think merit uh, serious consideration. So in, in closing, I'd say that uh, Pollock understands Prasad theory quite well, and he has a particular, uh, 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 let us say, uh, uh, endeavor to say that Prasad theory as it exists today and the history and its science is quite murky, which needs to be clarified. And that's where somebody like Pollock would step in and clarify the whole field of our theory for us. So that's really the enterprise that he is building up. Uh, if there is something that he is bringing to the table that is worthy of consideration, we should certainly look at it, I think, uh, and not summarily dismiss his understanding, uh, but also call out uh, case ideas which are not uh, either well-formed or uh, just incorrect. Um, and it would also be interesting to see why he invokes Utpata and Bhattanayaka repeatedly uh, and if it's something that uh, traditional schools also consider equally important. If not, why not? Uh, and as I said, uh, this sciences for us is, is indeed very uh, uh, topical, and uh, we should pursue that. Um, uh, and and that's something that uh, Pollock's writings really lack. He doesn't really uh, seem to have have fully formed ideas of how science of Russia should be uh, formulated. Uh, and 
he tends to look look at uh, Russia in a very isolated manner uh, and without taking in the, the larger cultural context or the context of Auschwitz, uh, which is a fairly important concept in traditional thought. Uh, so these are the kinds of uh, ideas I think uh, are worthy uh, for, for further consideration. I'll stop here and uh, uh, hopefully uh, take questions if I can hear them. Okay, wonderful, great uh, presentation. Um, in in um, uh, my reading of Pollock, uh, he says that, uh, in a simplified way, uh, if I can characterize it, he says that the spiritual dimension was lacking until recent centuries. Uh, Rupa Goswami uh, uh, and, and that kind of an era is when spirituality gets introduced. Uh, almost like it's a very modern kind of a thing, but he's really trying to uh, develop a rasa aesthetics, which is not sick, where the sacredness isn't at as important. Do you want to comment yeah. on that? Uh, yes, in fact, that's something that I found strange uh, in Pollock's uh, view, because he, he clearly knows that there has been this Vedanta aspect of rasa which is in fact today's uh, dominant uh, framework for looking at uh, rasa theory. Uh, for example, if uh, somebody like Kutumashastriji were to give a talk on rasa theory, he would use the framework of uh, rasa theory to explain, uh, sorry, Advaita to explain rasa to us. Yeah. And that is well, well known. And Pollock, in fact, mentions this in, in the reader book. He uh, very briefly mentions this, but then very quickly switches track to Bhakti tradition and then goes on to uh, Rupa Goswami and, uh, and the like. Right. So, um, so, so I, a few, few things. First, it's a common uh, practice of Pollock to acknowledge something just to uh, make sure he, he won't be criticized for ignoring it. He acknowledges something and then suddenly ignores it completely in his final conclusions. In, in other words, there's a disconnect between what he has acknowledged and he hasn't disposed of it in any uh, conscious way. He just acknowledges it and in the next section, it's like it never it never existed and he moves on as if it ne uh, ignoring it. This is, this is one thing. Now, regarding your comment, you find it strange that he uh, does not uh, in, want to consider the sacred dimension. Uh, it is not strange because uh, you see, you looked at the Rasa idea, the Rasa work of Pollock in isolation. Uh, he does not connect all his works very explicitly for readers like us. He connects them in his classrooms for his students, but he has a grand narrative. And in that grand narrative, it is basically the desacralization, which is one of the topics we put into this conference. Removing the sacred is a very uh, major underlying, uh, you know, uh, agenda. Uh, so where it is sacred, that was the whole idea of uh, separating the Paramarthika from the Vyavarika. Uh, that was also the idea of, of uh, Shastras being linked with, uh, with Vedas are problematic. They deny freedom and so on, and they cause human rights problems. That is also the sacred element is also a problem in the Ramayana, when uh, the Ram uh, invokes, Ram encourages, Ramayana encourages the divine king, and the divine king, uh, uh, you know, in human beings is oppressive. So, if you look at, uh, he's clearly, it's a very, uh, what I've considered him, why I consider him to be so important 
is that unlike those who dismiss the Sanskrit tradition, those leftists and Marxists who dismiss the Sanskrit tradition, he actually thinks it's very important to study it, understand it, and re reinterpret it as a as a tradition where the sacredness was linked with negative with kind of uh, social problems. And the beautiful things like kavya and uh, aesthetics, uh, which have to be recovered and rescued, uh, have to be uh, removed. You have to get rid of the sacred, sacred element in order to rescue them. This is why in his work he is so clear that shastra and uh, kavya have to be separated. The, 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 the one is a problem, the other is, is uh, wonderful and beautiful. So in order, to, uh, in order to do this, he has to eliminate uh, the sacred uh, element from rasa. So maybe you could look into that as a possible way of understanding him further. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, what you say certainly makes sense. And in fact, and looking at it from that perspective, it also makes sense why he would, for example, give a special emphasis to Buddhism here and say that Buddhists had to teach these Brahmanical priests to learn compassion. Yeah. Uh, so that sort of ties into... Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and all, the, uh, all the texts that he wants to valorize... Uh, are post-Buddhism. Writing is after Buddhism, Kavya is after Buddhism, uh, before Buddhism was oral, it was only Paramarthika, it was oppressive, it was exclusivist and things like that. So the, the social, political uh, underlying uh, met, uh, you know, framework one should understand, it is very, very difficult to, you have to read him all his books and here and there and put it together and then when you get his framework, uh, then you go back and read it a second time and it makes more sense. I think that's, uh, uh, that's, that's true, yeah. Uh, and in fact, even looking at uh, Death of Sanskrit and this, the Language of God's book and this, uh, they have a similar thread running through them, uh, with making a distinction between uh, the oral tradition and the written tradition that has a very significant parallel here. Uh, so I guess that's something that uh, uh, traditional scholars... Uh, should be able to easily refute, but then do that in a principled manner. Uh, uh, but I agree with your point that uh, looking at his works the second time, having read all the books, uh, gives you a, a, a very different understanding of uh, where he is coming from and, and what narrative he is really constructing. Because at the end of the day, it, in, in most of his works, it seems to be about narrative building. So you have a sort of a top-down approach where you have decided your narrative and then you uh, sort of find uh, a verse here, a quote there to make up that narrative. Uh, and even if it doesn't really make up the complete narrative, it doesn't matter because uh, you have already given a conclusion. Uh, and that's what in his uh, works become important. Uh, and if, for example, as I try to bring out here, he makes this claim of this fundamental difference between these two forms of literature. But the evidence that, are, that is provided is really flimsy. Uh, but then the conclusion is already stated, and there ends the matter. I would just like to point out uh, a couple of things. Uh, Pollock puts a lot of emphasis on chronology. As Rajivji has already pointed out in various uh, on various occasions that Chronology is one of the tools by which he shows that there is there are discontinuities. And also in Rasa theory, for example, from Rasa Sin to Rasa Hard, one of the articles that uh, Professor Pollock has published, 
he tries to show that the domain of natya domain of the scene uh, is the domain from where the rasa analysis has been borrowed and extended to the domain of the kavya but uh, as a bengali musician i am reminded of a text a 16th century text in uh, on music and dance it's called sangeet damodara uh, it's written by pandit shubhankar in 16th century where he is talking about nritya dance and music vocal music and in this there are discussions of mudras and obviously nritya is not just for the ear it is also for uh, the visible art it is a drishyam so uh, in that also he borrows the saridari the samvadi from the saitya darpana and also abhinav gupta and also he invokes the brahma swada sahodara concept so i think that is also important to uh, dismiss the kind of discontinuity that professor polock tries to show to help me you can do two things you can go to the subscribe button on my youtube and subscribe we need more subscribers there uh, secondly i get lots of emails on people saying how do we donate how can we help you uh, you go to rajimalhotra.com or you go to infinityfoundation.com and you can hit the donate button you can donate in dollars there are different ways mentioned if you want to donate in rupees there is a column called uh, infinity foundation india and you click that and there are instructions on how you can donate in india